Hello everyone, welcome to uh, the NT Shed and to Scene Changes, which is part of the celebration uh, of the National Theatre's 50th uh, anniversary. Today we're talking about uh, theatre venues. We're going to be looking back a little at, uh, at changes in the way theatres have been uh, used and conceived of and, and pointing a little of the way forward too. 50 years ago, when the National Theatre was founded, it seemed obvious to the people who framed the National Theatre Act that to have a National Theatre you needed a theatre, hence uh, Dennis Lasden's commission to, to, to uh, design the concrete building uh, behind us, which has become a geographical landmark. Uh, ten years ago, when we, this country had its second national theatre, the National Theatre of Scotland, it was not at all obvious that people needed to have a theatre to have a national theatre, and the National Theatre of Scotland uh, has no permanent theatrical architectural base. Uh, instead, it makes... Uh, it builds relationships with other existing theatres, but it also puts shows into non-theatre buildings. It sends tours around non-theatre spaces right across uh, the country. That may be a sign of a direction of travel, and that's what we're going to be uh, talking about today. My name's Dan Rebellato. Um, to help me think about these things, uh, I've got four uh, very well uh, chosen guests uh, who are great experts uh, in this area. Judith Knight is the co-founder of Arts Admin, a producing organisation that over 34 years uh, has supported cross-art form, mixed-media work, bringing together visual artists, performance makers, uh, local communities and more, often creating site-specific and site-responsive work in those collaborations. Uh, Felix Barrett is the artistic director of Punch Drunk, Theatre Company, a, a company that takes over non-theatre buildings uh, to create immersive environments for its audience to explore the story worlds of such things as uh, the Faust myth of the worlds of Ed Edgar Allan Poe and currently Buchanan's Wojciech in their massive multi-story, in both senses, uh, uh, The Drowned Man. Um, Andy Field is the co-founder of uh, Forest Fringe, uh, which is a producing organisation, again, which makes work in a bewildering range of spaces from somewhat traditional theatres, uh, like The Gate, uh, to creating theatre in your own mind. Um, and uh, right on the end, we have Jenny Seeley, who is the artistic director of uh, Grey Eye Theatre Company, uh, with whom she's created uh, a, a series of very successful outdoor performances, including The Limbless Night and a hugely successful adaptation of The Iron Man for the Greenwich and Docklands International Festival. It's also relevant, of course, uh, to note that she was the co-director of the opening ceremony for the 2012 uh, Paralympic Games. Um, Andy, I'm going to start with you, if that's all right. <clears throat> um, somebody um, said to me recently that uh, they think the, uh, there's more enthusiasm for, for producing theatre outside theatres than at any time since the medieval period. <laughs> um, and it does seem to me that you know, there is a, there's a great deal of interest in street art, in pop-up theatres, in, in, in that kind of work. Could you say a little bit, I mean, just sketching some of the traditions that you think this work draws on, you don't need to go back to the medieval period, <laughs> um, the, the traditions it draws on, but also say something about why you think this work hasn't been as widely recognised in the past as it is now. Oh, well, simple one to begin with, then. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of points of reference you could draw back to. I mean, uh, uh, it, it, it seems to leave, but yeah, I mean, of course, go back to the... 
the medieval period and that the the kind of uh, the really kind of community orientated uh, acts of theatre that used to occur there. But a much more recent point of reference, which perhaps is of interest, is you know when we look back at say something like um, the, the happenings scene in the 60s in New York, for example, which is hugely relevant in the way in which, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, people who came much more from a gallery-based uh, context who might consider themselves to be um, visual artists or composers who began to make performance in what we would consider today to be pop-up spaces, like a, uh, at the back of an old shop unit, or um, people like Alan Capral who were doing um, sort of quite elaborate performances that would happen out in streets or uh, in parks or whatever. And then from that, that kind of merged with a kind of New York theatrical tradition from people like... Uh, in the figures of people like Meredith Monk, who, you know, you look at some of the works that Meredith Monk was making in about 1969, 1971, and they wouldn't look out of place today, you know, in the programme of somewhere like Battersea Arts Centre or National Theatre Wales. Uh, there's a piece that she made called Juice, for example, uh, which was, I think, 1969, which uh, happened in three different locations across a period of about two months first with this massive, what we would today probably consider an installation-based performance in the Guggenheim, where you wandered through the Guggenheim Museum and saw all of these various people. Uh, and then in a more traditional theatre for a second part, and then the third part was in her own loft, in her kind of bedroom apartment that she lived in. So, you know, that, there's, there's definitely sort of DNA from that work that, that can be traced sort of directly onto some of the kind of the things that are going on today. And, and you mentioned, you know, theatre that happens in your own mind. That, that, that was um, uh, one of the most recent things that we've done with Forest Fringe is, is a book of um, performances that you make yourself, um, perhaps on the streets of your city or in your own home or wherever else. And that, you know, has a direct precedent in, um, in that kind of uh, those instruction-based works of the 1960s. Why hasn't that perhaps been acknowledged? I think probably because to a degree, a lot of that work was seen to exist within the, uh, the, the sort of the domain, the community of, of, of gallery-based visual art. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a lot of the, uh, when I was studying that work for my PhD, uh, the places I had to go to were, um, you know, the MoMA archive uh, mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and the, the Tate and uh, the Barbican Gallery and, and you know, the... the um, there's very much a sort of uh, a sense of ownership of that of, of that kind of community of artists within that that mm. context, and perhaps um, theatre hasn't been as open to recognising the relationship that they have with that that you know those that kind of 60s and 70s work. Um, mm. uh, perhaps more that theatre recognises its relationship with the kind of the next generation, the Robert Wilsons and the people that came afterwards. Right. Perhaps not that immediate. Precedent. It's interesting that you talk about the uh, the division that there are, perhaps quite artificial <coughs> divisions. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about this when I was kind of preparing for this panel because uh, on Saturday I saw two bits of theatre. The first one was at the Tricycle Theatre, and the second one was a headphone piece of work in the basement of Shoreditch Town Hall. So in the first one I'm sitting in a fairly conventional theatre. The second one. I'm wearing headphones and being instructed to walk around a, a particular space. Uh, what's interesting about it is that the Tricycle Theatre has the appearance of a pop-up theatre because it, you know, it was, it was in, inserted into a burnt 
down building. It still has that character of something that almost could have been made out of a kit. Whereas I'm walking around Shoreditch Town Hall and here is, a, I guess, a at least 150-year-old building. I'm looking at the permanence of it. And actually, so they have s some of the opposite values of the way you might ordinarily think about it. Um, how far do you think it's, this, is, this is about buildings and how far is it about other things? Um, um, it's a difficult one. Um, I mean, I, I think that, for me, a lot of it is about, um, not necessarily about the specificities of the building, but about creating contexts in which people feel comfortable and in which certain kinds of work can thrive. It's a, a culture in the quite literal sense of making an environment in which things can thrive. And um, uh, that, that as, as, as you rightly point out, that, that can take many different forms, many different buildings. What we at Forest Fringe often think of ourselves as doing is to try and make space in, in physical buildings, in bricks and mortar buildings, for things that perhaps those buildings couldn't normally accommodate. And that, both mean, that might mean in quite literal terms doing things like putting in lights and sound and whatever, but uh, it also is about the way in which you're inviting an audience to come and engage with that and uh, the, the, way in, the, the way in which they feel that they are uh, supposed to behave in that space uh, and how that impacts upon what they're watching and how they choose to watch it. I mean, a, a, a contemporary, you know, a, the National Theatre, if you read what, um, uh, was intended to invite the audience to perform their experience of it in a certain way. You know, the way you're supposed to behave in the foyers and the way that you're then supposed to behave in the theatre and the way that the relationship between those two things operate mm. is a, a series of implicit performances that have maybe not, a, a, that are in part to do with the bricks and mortar of the building, but in part to do with how we choose to arrange and invite people to enter and, and participate in that building. So, yeah, of, and of course, um, the, the physical bricks and mortar that you have to work with are of relevance, but I think equally important is how you invite people to um, construct a relationship with, to navigate through, and to experience art within those physical uh, sort of architecture. Thank you. Uh, Felix, this is a good point to bring you in, I think, because uh, obviously well, you would appear to me to be somebody who actually really likes buildings. Uh, in the sense you, you're, you're always looking out for interesting buildings that you can create work in. Uh, it's just generally that they tend not to be theatres. Could you say something about what, what makes a good found space for the kind of work you're, you're looking at making? Um, I think it's, it comes back to narrative and it comes back to um, every building has a sort of um, an inherent tale to be told that's sort of woven into the cracks and is in the smudges on the walls. Um, and it's almost the way you, it follows on from what I'm saying about audience behaviour, the way you explore a building and the way you navigate around it, is, it's, it tells you its own story. Um, and so for found <coughs> space work, um, you need the whole environment to resonate with the world of that story. Um, so the more that's, that's already sort of burnt into the actual fabric of the space, mm. the easier it is to tell a story. Actually, I was um, in uh, San Francisco last week looking at empty buildings. I got to see, saw seven of them, um, a whole variety from warehouses to uh, a shop that was currently working and an old theatre. And actually, for our work, the hardest space to use would be the theatre because right. it's, by its very essence, it's a blank canvas and it was devoid of overt narrative. That's very interesting, when you, because when you say um, what you're looking for is the narrative that 
that's as it were already there in the in the architecture and the spatial arrangements. Um, what you then tend to do, not always, but you tend to do, is 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 use a play or a set of pre-existing narratives yeah. as your jumping off point for the work. Now, is that because you go into a, a building and kind of go, this seems to me a Faust building? Or is it that you, you're thinking of Faust and you're looking for a particular building, or you're interested in actually the juxtaposition, or, or what? It's the difference between site-specific and site-sympathetic, which is what right. we are. Um, and because we, we don't use the sort of the detail, the sort of bit of masking tape on the floor as a narrative starting point. I think it's actually, in terms of the story I'm looking for, it's the experiential story. It's the emotional journey that an audience member goes on and the state the building kind of sort of um, tunes you into. You're, you're gently manipulated into, um, into uh, uh, an emotional place and then we then register what that place is and find an existing play or source right. that chimes with that world and then fuse the two together. If you ever sort of betray the, the inherent natural atmosphere within a building, it's like it's trying to, with a play that contrasts it, it's like trying to put a square peg into a round hole and um, you're never going to have the impact that, that you could if you just trusted what right. the building's telling you. Mm. Um, it's interesting that you talk about narrative in terms of buildings um, because I think you know occasionally people who see a punch drunk show experience a certain anxiety perhaps about are they basically are they missing the story because if you if you see the scenes in you know in a, in a random kind of order <coughs> are you getting the right version of it now of course this is something you're you're in a way your shows are trying to erase but nonetheless how, how committed are you to well how does narrative figure in in terms of the site responsive work that you, you make? Uh, I think with, with <coughs> any art, it all has to come down to its essence to what, you know, to, to that story. And, uh, and I think as long as the clarity, with our work basically, it is, it is linear if you work out how to solve the puzzle and make sense of it. It's a linear story, it's just that the way the audience consume it is non-linear. Right. Um, and with anything, you have to have that sort of that that spine, that bedrock that's solid. Um, you know, the man who built his house upon the rock, as opposed to the man who built his house upon the sand. Um, and uh, we we always start with that because that that narrative, because audiences need to uh, within our space craft the evening they desire. And if they want stories, it needs to be there to be found. Equally, the way the work plays is a bit more like life, so that you can't, it's not possible to see the whole show. Um, if you were to play it on a stage, it would be, our current one would be about nine to ten hours. Um, and you just have to make the best of it. It's about trusting your own intuition and your sort of instinctual, your gut, and going with that sort of more primal force and listening to that story rather than trusting your head so much and trying to piece together the, um, the literal, logical, you know, more pragmatic narrative. Right. Thank you. Um, Jenny, if I could just turn to you on this. It, it, it strikes me, sometimes you hear West End producers complaining that actually because, because a lot of West End theatres are listed, are listed buildings, it's very difficult for them to be able to be modernised uh, in a way that contemporary audiences um, 
seem to need. Um, and I, it strikes me you must have a particular take on this because, of course, a lot of old conventional theatres lack the most basic access requirements that, that you, working with a, a lot of disabled performers, um, would require. Is that one of the reasons why you went outside? And if, uh, and if that's one of them, what, what were the other things that you felt in that, that move out of a conventional theatre building? That's a big question. Um, can you hear me okay? I never really wanted to go outside the comfort of um, a nice black box, but Bradley Hemmings, who's the artistic director of Greenwich and Docklands, forced me outside. <laughs> and I am internally grateful because it has opened up a whole new world for Grey Eye. Access absolutely fuels everything the company is about, from, from practical access to artistic access. It's not just a ramp, it's many, much, much more than that. What you do realise, you know, those West End theatres and many other theatres, there is the physical barrier for deaf and disabled people, but more so, there is an attitudinal barrier. You know, we are not really the sort of people you want in your theatres. Yes, you do your caps, you do your turpy-turpy, you do your audio description, but actually, you're not that really interested in really cultivating a deaf and disabled, hardcore order that will come and see everything. Uh, breaks my heart, actually. But and a lot of my artists, because of their physical disabilities, they move, there may be guttural sounds, so they feel really not at home in you know, the, the mainstream theatrical ecology. I know there's now a move towards relaxed performances, but excuse me, I think all theatres should be relaxed. We should have a choice when we want to go and see something. Usually it's one Thursday every season where it's captioned. The caption machine's about 3,000 miles away from the action. <laughs> I can watch television, thank you very much. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's flat, it's words. You can't relate the words to what's happening on stage you're looking at there. But outdoors, suddenly, there's a greater equality. So for my audiences, they can come. A, it's free, for the most part. We will never perform anywhere that's not accessible. And you're not judged. It's a much freer, greater experience for many of our disabled audience members. Yeah. But the challenge of outdoors <laughs> is it's outdoors. So you've got noise pollution. You've got a whole other host of fantastic <coughs> challenges. And I'm just thinking about narrative and why do we do what we do, where do we do it? When we did um, Against the Tide, that was the Greenwich and Docklands um, project, a commission. So we did it right by the River Thames, just opposite the Catastark. Beautiful. So it really felt appropriate. It was called Against the Tide. Then Angus, bless his heart, brought us here for Watch the Space. It is called Watch the Space, isn't it? And, you know, we're not allowed in the Nationals performance, but we're allowed outside. Fine, it's a start. <laughs> so there we are, you know, doing against the tide. It's all about the sea, but we're up against the bridge and the, the water's there. So suddenly it all turns. But it's how do you constantly redevelop that work in different sites, you know? And the garden, another one that was... Um, absolutely designed at St Alfred's Park, a tiny little beautiful little cemetery that's got needles, condoms, cans, that was a starting point. And again, we moved it to right here by the South Bank Centre, urban. We brought our garden with us. 
why not? I'm sorry, I'll we'll finish in a minute. But then <laughs> a limbless night. This was with um, veterans. Some of those veterans were part of my professional team for the opening ceremony at the Paris. And we got to know some more. We were doing the Rite of Spring. It was inspired by the Rite of Spring. So soldiers have made a sacrifice. Yes, I know, they chose to sign up, maybe. But they have made a sacrifice. But deaf and disabled people, because the, the current economic climate, you know, we're benefit scroungers, we're, we're being tested for means tested, you know, it's shit. So, also, so we're making a sacrifice. So Bradley said, where do you want to do it, Jen? I went on a little wreck here, I went to Island Gardens, which is right opposite the Naval College. Mm. And the Naval College was set up for disabled naval officers. But, you know, that whole swathe of granite, it's establishment, isn't it? And we're on Island Gardens, and that's what Cameron wants us to be. He wants deaf and disabled people on an island, out of the way, out of harm's length, just to fester and die. Right of spring, perfect, isn't it? <laughs> so we, we sat up there. So the audience looked at our big structure, our sway poles, my glorious performance. Oh, but oh my God, I got the shock of my life because I realised how hard my performers were having to work against the backdrop of, of Greenwich, even though it was over the water. The establishment was just... <laughs> it was so there that you had to fight to earn their right to perform there in a way, mm. which was brilliant. Because some of them are like non-performers, but they suddenly realised the influence of the establishment and it gave them that confidence to really believe in their rights. Mm. Then we moved to um, Queen Elizabeth Park and we set the whole thing in between the trees and it was much softer. So again, that changed their performance style. And it became more of a parable, a parable of rights rather than this campaign, if you know what I mean. It still had the same gut response and the, the political message, but it was in a way they didn't have to work quite so hard. So sometimes you do get the aesthetic absolutely right, sometimes you don't. But like I say, outdoor work has, we reach far more disabled people than ever before. We still have to think about how best to make sure it's fully accessible for deaf and blind audiences. But also we reach far more non-disabled audiences who might not come and see grey eyes work because, you know, disability is a bit, isn't it? We don't really want to see those people. But suddenly we're there. And you have to see it because we're there, very visibly disabled. So it's, it's a win-win, really, as far as I'm concerned. Great. <laughs> uh, can I ask, I just want to ask you about uh, another piece that you've done because, of course, as I, as I mentioned, you are part responsible for probably, no, certainly, the most widely seen piece of British theatre uh, of the last 50 years, which is the opening ceremonies of the, uh, the 2012 Olympics and Paralympic Games. Um, can I just ask you how you approached a, a commission like that, which you knew was going to be so high profile, uh, and whether that sheds any light on, on the nature of outdoor work, which of course is what it was. You just drink an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh God, I don't even know where to start. Bradley and I first went to the stage, and we had to have to fight to get that job, but we got it. We weren't first choice, but they gave it to an undisabled organisation. They turned it down eventually because the money was shit, but Bradley and I don't care about that. We were there. We'll do it. <laughs> Mugs. But we walked into the stadium 
<laughs> and it's really intimate, actually. Right. Felt very sick. <laughs> we rocked an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, obviously Danny Ball's um, production um, budget was mammoth because he is opening all the games in a row. So, quite rightly, ours was <laughs> we, in comparison. So we had a lot less people to play with and a lot less money. But I swear to God, money is not always everything. And I thank God I work for Greyo because we, I mean, I've got Charles and Kevin there be going rocking thing. No, no, she's rubbish with money. <laughs> They're just giving me a telling off today because I've been a bit crap with budgets. But, <laughs> but we had to be so damn resourceful with what we had. And we had 3,000 volunteers rather than 10. They were the salt, as everyone tells you, the volunteers make it happen. The hardest job we had was to tell a story on a, in there. Because so much outdoor work can be just seen as spectacle. It's just lovely to look at. No, we wanted a narrative. And we looked at various different other Paralympic opening ceremonies. I mean, the Beijing one, I'm sorry, it's just a load of Teletubbies dancing around. It, there was no narrative, no work. You know, there was an expectation because it's disability. Who gives a fuck? Let's just do something nice to keep them happy. Bradley and I were not going to do that. We wanted to tell something to make a statement. And thank God for the Leveson inquiry, really, because Jeremy Hunt was too busy doing that, so he took his <laughs> eye off us. Um, so we had our red protest tents. Yep. We called them galaxy things in front of Boroughs because we, might, we thought we might get into a bit of trouble. <laughs> but no, they were red, they were occupation. You know, we had Autisticus, Spasticus Autisticus. And um, even just the last three weeks, Steve, you were there, weren't you? Three weeks in, just before the show, head of ceremony said, Jenny, are you still doing Spasticus Autisticus? I said, Martin, we've been choreographing it for months. Of course we're doing it. Oh. Oh, right. Oh, God. Um, oh, yes. That's marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, it was extraordinary. But you can tell a story. Because there's something, again, is that narrative, it's linear or not. If you can engage people with something that's about heart, the engagement of heart and mind and gut, then you can take them on a journey, you can take them on a story. And that's what we set out to do. And I think to a greater or lesser extent, we achieved that. Kay. And we did a little bit of <laughs> putting two fingers up at everything. Thank you very Sorry. much. Um, <laughs> <coughs> Judith, I want to just ask a little bit about, um, we've been banding a couple of terms around, like site-specific or site-sympathetic or site-responsive. A lot of the work, well, quite a certain strand of the work that Arts Admin has been supporting works in uses visual art techniques or performance art techniques to relate or reframe or renew our relationship to particular places. Could you try and untangle a little bit what, what your understanding of these phrases are and what's at stake artistically in, in those divisions? Well, I think, I think all of them I find really interesting. I'm really passionate about working, I mean, in, in spaces, but particularly outside. And site-specific... Well, site responsive is particularly interesting. If a site has given an artist uh, some thought of this is something I'd really love to do in this particular space, it's slightly different from let's look for a huge building to do this project. Mm. So, it's, so it's coming from the, the, the building itself or, the, or the, the outdoor space itself. So a lot of artists are relating to 
spaces and we've done a huge for example a big sound installation completely in completely invisible but three miles of of tracing east london was done by the artist graham miller mm. where you walk you listen with with headphones but you can't see a thing and it's permanent and it's talking about the site and the place his house was knocked down actually to build the m11 motorway so it had a whole history behind it so things like that where a space has really inspired an artist to make something I find really fascinating. Mm. We did, I mean, years ago we did a project, Bobby Baker, who used to work with, did a project in her own kitchen. And often these are easier, these projects, to get in in a festival situation, actually. Mm. But, but we thought it was going to be a one-off. And what I love sometimes about these things, it's a one-off in her own kitchen with 40 people, but actually it got taken up by festivals all over the world. And they were all, all the, the, the friends of the international festivals were vying each other to offer their better kitchen than their <laughs> others for Bobby to do that show in. So, and we, years ago, we also did a project by Pip Simmons about the Vietnamese boat, boat people, but it was on the water. So in other words, they're, they're responding to particular things on beaches, about the sea. I love those, and I love, the, I love them for lots of reasons. One is because of the inspiration behind the place, but also... I love the idea of audiences coming across something that they're not expecting. I love the unexpectedness of it. It's not, sometimes you stumble across them, sometimes you don't even book them, you just turn up. So you're not planning to go to the theatre on Wednesday night, you just find something. Mm. And for me, they're really fascinating. And I, audiences, you get a new audience, a different audience that wouldn't necessarily come mm. into a building. And I think some of the most inspiring things I've seen have been been site responsive but also I mean that you know there's a they, it, there's a very you know simple there's a very you know not much of a different site specific site responsive but all that all that work is what would you say an artist brings to our experience of space because there are, are ways in which you can you know there are there, people do write psychogeographically about space and, and and people can write histories of space and so on but there seems to be there's something rather particular in the nature of the reframing that an art project brings to an experience of space. How would you characterise that or what range of different experiences does it offer? Well, I think it, I mean, you, you, it probably stays with you forever. I mean, you, you probably, I remember going to St Pancras, there have been two in St Pancras before it was redeveloped. One was by Geraldine Pilgrim, which was amazing, and another one by Deborah Warner, which was also amazing. And you went around on your own, and it was a long, both a long time ago. I'll never look at St Pancras. I went into some drinks thing not very long ago, and I, right. I won't get out of my head the idea before it was developed in a sort of posh hotel. This was, we were walking up into the tiny little rooms at the top where the, where the maids lived and down the back stairs, and you so, Actually, what's interesting too is you partly go for the project because you want to see the building. Right. And an organisation who are brilliant at finding sites, I mean, Art Angel, probably lots of people in the audience have been to Art Angel projects, they seem to find sites that nobody ever knows existed. And I think there is a fascination to go and find bits of London. They did something right underneath Oldwich Tube Station yes. a while back, I mean, some years back. But it, it, it's a fascination of finding, and actually, that stays with you forever, even if something's then developed into a shopping centre. I mean, another project we did by Graham Miller is now sort of a big, flashy shopping centre in Birmingham. But those people who saw that project there, I hope, will always remember this, this project right. he did there. So I think, I think it, it just brings you 
it's not just about a history, but it, sometimes it does take in the history of the building and it sometimes mm. takes in what the building was made for, but it, it's picking up on an essence of the building. A bit like Felix was saying, you, you get in there and you feel that, and I think that, that does stay with it, even if the building's completely turned into something else. So it's a sort of psychological graffiti. It is. It psychological graffiti is a good way. The building. Um, I just a question to, uh, again to, to Judith, but I think maybe other people could, could come in, in on this. Um, why do you think there has, there, there has been or appears to have been such an upsurge of this work uh, more recently? Um, what is it, do you think, about this kind of work that it, that's going out of theatre buildings, finding other kinds of spaces? What is it expressing uh, or engaging with in the contemporary world? Gosh, why? I mean, it's, we were briefly, you're not supposed to be talking about a panel conversation before you end up on the panel, but we were briefly talking before we came in about why there's not so much work in New York these days as there is. Actually, Britain seems to have a real upsurge in this work, and mm. I think it's incredibly positive. And, I, and maybe, why is it? I, I would never, ever say it's because there's no funding, because we never want to make that argument that people are making work because they need to make it other places but I just think there's been examples obviously Punch Drunker One and Dream Think Speak and Yumi Bum Bum Training but they, they've sort of risen you know really important and well-known companies that actually inspire other people to do the same but it has been going on for a very long time indeed but I think I think young audiences like it maybe they don't necessarily people who want to walk into get into theatres and it is as I say it's sort of around the corners of cities where you don't expect it to be or indeed in the middle of the countryside I hope it continues I think it's really really positive I hope it continues but the other I mean it's not we should never assume it's cheap it's often often is not it's very can be very very expensive there's all sorts of problems about doing it and also many times you don't have a box office income at all mm. and there's all sorts of reasons why it's but so it's not it's not a financial reason it's happened I just think it's it's just the way it's going I mean I almost think it's um, it's due to the internet. And over the past 15 years, our the way we live our lives has completely transformed, and everything's so immediate. And anything our heart desires is a couple of clicks away. And it's so easy. Um, and I think mm. work outside of the confines of a safe theatrical space like this is suddenly dangerous. Firstly, and that maybe that adrenaline that comes with that, and that sense of having the rug pulled from underneath your feet and not knowing what the formula of how you engage in your art is, is makes you feel alive in a way that maybe the internet <coughs> is sanitizing and compressing and mm. fluffing our lives. Um, and then also because um, just there's an intimacy that comes with being out of context slightly. Mm. And there's a real connection that can be made when you're closer to the action and you're sharing the same space as the action rather than having this, the segregation audience and performers. Um, and that feels as though it's mm. an immediate byproduct of screens, and we have many friends, but we don't know who they are. And it's just having the real vital touch of another living being is such a sort of rarefied commodity now that mm. it's filtered into our artwork. So Andy, do you have a view? Yeah, this? I think uh, Felix mentioned screens at the end. I think it's. I think that's really this this sense of um, it, it's a bit like that moment when. Um, photography is invented, right? And as a consequence of photography, it frees uh, the act of painting up to be more than perhaps it previously was, or more than it was primarily. 
used to be and the materiality of the paint and the texture of it and the process of the act of physically painting you know become very important through Rothko, Pollock and you know many before then Van Gogh whoever else are beginning to explore what the act of painting and the materiality of paint as a thing it physically is and I wonder if there is you know I mean this is going back I'm trying to look at a much broader seam of history but you know um, film first you know, first tried to sort of uh, replicate theatre and then became in increasingly confident in the last 50 years, especially with what it was doing. And now film and television together are incredibly good at, at doing these kind of um, sort of uh, fourth wall realist story-based narratives. You know, story-based narratives? You know what I mean. Um, <laughs> And, um, and, and, and so the, with the kind of, with the, the pure kind of pervasiveness of, of those sort of screen-based storytelling, the, the, there's this real desire within live performance to go, okay, well, what, like that act of physically painting, like the texture and material of the paint, it's like, what is the texture and the material of, of the live experience itself? What's that, what's the physical thing that we can do? And so increasingly, um, it's about, you know, what's the, the physical touch of bodies on bodies and the act of moving someone around a real space and the, the kind of un becoming ever more fascinated by what is exclusively unique and special and thrilling in the way that Felix said about the live experience itself. And I think that work that happens in these, in these kind of spaces for all the reasons that Judith said and all the reasons that Jenny said are, are really exciting mm. and thrilling for, for artists to discover and for audiences. When I'm an audience, I, I do get a kind of tingle of excitement that I don't think, and you know, it's, a, it's, it's what you know, some people might call a, a kind of a, a cheap thrill, but uh, <laughs> it's... A, Probably no one on this panel, but certainly some people <laughs> yeah. that come here quite regularly. Um, uh, but it, that I do get that tingle of excitement. I don't think I'm ever going to get going in to sit into a theatre show because it feels like this is an engagement with the sort of the raw material of live performance and the thing that is so unique that it couldn't, it couldn't occur in any other medium. Thank you. And Jenny, what do you think about this? Just, um, we've just taken the Iron Man out to uh, hard-to-reach hard audiences. And um, it's, you know, the, the Ted Hughes story, The Iron Man. And um, we had about six or seven festivals lined up. And two or three of them cancelled because, like Great Yarmouth, because of the la lack of money. Skegness, on the other hand, honoured their commitment, but we only did one performance. And the actress said to me afterwards, as did Amit, who directed it, said, Jen, if our audience has needed it, they are sort of like culturally deprived of sign language, of audio description, of seeing disabled people, of having a story right on their streets, something that's for all their family. We could have just, they said we could have done six performances quite easily. Mm. And I'm just sorry, I've just got back from Bangladesh yesterday and I've been working with a group of adults who are, have been for most of their life in residential care, I suppose very familiar with television and to an extent film, but theatre is not part of their remit. And we've just been using The Tempest as our starting point. And I just see them going, oh my God, what theatre? Theatre means acting, yeah? But could I be an actor? Well, yes. So it's, I was like, wow, you know, forgetting that theatre and the experience of theatre or outdoor arts is not everyone's um, mm -hmm. reference point at all. 
Oh, what a tragedy that is. And I think we have a responsibility in the Declaration of Human Rights that we have absolute right to equal participation in culture and the arts. And I think this is what we're all trying to do, is take work to people who might not necessarily see it. So we're very... Um, we're honouring our social responsibility, I feel. Okay, I've, I have to be responsive to the constraints of this space and we've run out of time. So can I ask you just to join me in thanking Judith, Felix, Andy, and Jane.